You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Uh, right now, though, let's jump into a Bible study. Are you ready to study your Bibles? Uh, is your heart open? Are your ears open? Is your mind open? Would you ponder, would you consider that as you've gathered today to worship Jesus, that he wants to speak to you? He wants to bless you. He wants to grow you into a deeper, more intimate relationship with him. Uh, I know a lot of times we are, we're kind of fine. We're like, no, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. God would like to draw us into a deeper relationship with him. And so may we allow him to have his way with us this morning. May we give him our hearts anew and afresh. Uh, we're jumping into uh, Matthew chapter 15. And uh, we're in a series titled, Unexpected Messiah. Uh, the reason for the name of the series, if you're just joining us, is the Messiah, even though he was prophesied from the beginning of time, Jesus was not what man expected him to be. They expected a powerful king coming in all of his glory to rule and to reign, and instead he came as a suffering servant to take our sins upon his own back to die in our place, take the punishment of our sins in, in our place, that he might give us his righteousness. And so we open his word today to look at him as he really is and to learn of him, and uh, again, knowing that he wants to speak to us. Uh, the title of the message this morning is an, an unusual title for a church service. Uh, the title of the message is, When God Does Not Answer. Have you ever experienced uh, just, God, where are you? I'm crying out, but I don't hear you. Uh, well, this passage is going to speak to us deeply about that subject today, when God does not answer. Uh, how many of you are married in here today? Yeah, a lot of hands. Uh, my wife will often say things, and I won't answer. And only the men are laughing right now. Did you notice that? Ha, ha, ha. It's not that I'm not listening. It's not that I'm not going to answer. It's just I'm thinking sometimes about what she asked, and I'm not giving an immediate response. Uh, she doesn't like that, by the way. Uh, similarly, we often pray and bring our hearts to the Lord but sometimes there are times when he, he doesn't speak right away. And today we're going to see one of these times. Here's the setting that we're at right now. Uh, Jesus has uh, moved and gone up to the Sea of Galilee. And he's been preaching around the Sea of Galilee. We looked last, week, last couple of weeks and he, he fed 5,000. Multitudes are coming to him. Uh, all kinds of people coming into the region of Galilee. And uh, Jesus is having some opposition with the religious leaders. And they come to him and they accuse him. They say, hey, uh, you're not following the laws. You're not a good religious leader. You're not, you're not doing it right. And Jesus taught uh, in our study last week. He said uh, they were accusing him of, you're not washing your hands, ceremonial cleansing, you know, religious cleansing before you eat. And Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man that defiles a man, but it's what comes out of his heart that defiles a man. It's not unkosher food that makes you defiled. It's an unkosher heart that makes you defiled. And the heart is the issue. Uh, they would not listen. They would not hear. They would not receive what Jesus was speaking to them. And uh, the tension is building between Jesus and the religious leaders. So we pick it up right where we left off. We're going through verse by verse in the Bible. Uh, a great way to study the Bible. And uh, just so encouraged that you bring your Bibles and are studying with us. And so we pick up in verse 21. 
uh, right where we left off last week, and, and let's read. Then Jesus went out from there. There is the Sea of Galilee where he had been ministering. Jesus went out from the Sea of Galilee and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, that doesn't sound like much to us, but let me kind of give you what's going on. Jerusalem is down here. The Sea of Galilee is up here. And Tyre and Sidon are in southern Lebanon, about 45 miles as the crow flies north and west, right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So he's now out of Israel, up all the way into southern Lebanon, there at Tyre and Sidon. Verse 22. And behold... A woman of Canaan, a Gentile, came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is severely demon-possessed. My daughter's in real trouble. Lord, hear me, help me. But look at verse 23. But he answered her, not a word. His disciples came and urged him, saying, send her away, for she cries out after us. So here's the setting. This woman comes and she's pleading with Jesus. Not just one time, not just have mercy on me, my daughter's in trouble, but she continues nonstop, nonstop, nonstop. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, help me. Jesus, this is my daughter. Jesus, you're the only one. Jesus, what? And she's pleading over and over. So much so, her persistence gets bothersome to the disciples. And they say, send her away. She's bothering us. Verse 24. But Jesus answered, not her, answered the disciples and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she's standing right over here. And Jesus looking over here to the disciples. And he says, I wasn't sent to her. I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Oh, that must have been hard for her to hear. Verse 25. And she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Oh, I love her persistence. I love her faith. I love that she believes so much that Jesus is the only way. That no matter how difficult it is to get there, she will not go anywhere else. Jesus is their, her only way. And now Jesus speaks to her for the first time. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the little dogs. Ouch! Ouch! And she said, Yes, Lord. Yet, even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, and don't, oh, I would have loved to hear the tone of these words. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Let it be done to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Wow, interesting story. Jesus often does things in ways that are so different than we would expect. It's why we call the series Unexpected Messiah. And here we see Jesus doing things, and we're like, what? Really? Huh? What? And Jesus would say, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. There are times I am quite confused and quite uh, unsure of why God is working this way in my life. 
I mean, Lord, why? It would be so much easier if you would just do this. And yet he does this in his own way. And rarely do I understand it at the time, but it is in hindsight that we look back on these things and we finally learn and we go, oh, wow, I see the wisdom in it. But at the time, it's very difficult. And how difficult when God doesn't answer. Before we go into the heart of this text and really the heart of the sermon, I want to take just a side introduction on some things that are interesting here that are worth looking at. It's good to look at what Jesus does and to emulate him. And before we look at the problem of, of God not answering, I want, to do, I want to just kind of shine the spotlight on what Jesus is actually doing here. Jesus takes his ministry into the Gentile regions of Tyre and Sidon. And again, uh, 45 miles as the crow flies, but probably a 60-mile journey on foot, uh, quite a ways up, all the way into southern Lebanon. And Jesus probably went this far north for a couple of reasons. Number one, to let the dust settle in Jerusalem, in Israel. Uh, sometimes it's good to let the dust settle. You see, tensions were mounting in Israel. Jesus was facing pressure from three parties. First and foremost, he was facing pressure from the Jewish people, from the Jewish populace. How so? Well, they were enamored with Jesus and they wanted to make him king. And you say, well, that sounds like a good problem, a good thing. And well, it's a good thing, but here's the problem. They wanted to make him king for the wrong reasons. What they wanted was they wanted to make him king because they fed him, because he fed them a free lunch. They wanted to make him king because he was fixing everybody's problems. They wanted to make him king because they were tired of the heavy taxation and oppression by Rome and the corrupt leadership. I know we cannot understand anything about that, but they were tired of all of that and they were looking for a leader to come and be a political figure who would fix this problem. And Jesus said, that's not why I'm coming. Jesus, this is going to sound surprising to you, Jesus is not interested in us coming to him to fix all our problems. Any more than a man is interested in getting a wife who loves him just for his, what? Money. Yeah, that would be a dysfunctional relationship. To have you only interested in me for my money, a rich man might say. And Jesus would say, this would be a dysfunctional relationship to have you want me to be king just because you want your problems fixed. Many people come to Jesus not because they're interested in Jesus, they simply want their problem fixed. And it's interesting that Jesus here pulls away from that. And he says, I'm going to go up north for a little bit. Secondly, not only was there the problem with the populace of the Jews, there was also the problem of the Roman leaders. King Herod was greatly troubled by Jesus' fame and rapidly growing popularity. And he, being a jealous, insecure man, was now intimidated by Jesus. And Jesus says, you know what? It's good just to go away for a little bit and to let some of this dust settle right now. Because he knew it wasn't his time to be crucified yet. By the way, Jesus' crucifixion, not accidental, not bad luck, not just, oh man, that's a tough thing, and he made the best out of it. No, 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 no. Jesus' crucifixion, the very purpose why he came. For this purpose I came, Jesus would say. And the very date that Jesus was crucified was totally in his sovereign hand. Jesus was crucified for you Bible scholars on what day? Passover. On Passover. Seven Jewish feasts in the nation Israel. 
Jesus' first coming fulfilled four of those feasts on the exact day of each of those feasts. One of them was Passover. Passover, what were they celebrating? Well, if you'll remember, Passover came from the book of Exodus when Moses delivered under God's power, God used Moses to deliver the children of Israel out of 400 years of bondage and oppression and slavery. And he brought these plagues on the nation, what God does when he judges nations, by the way. He brings destruction upon them. And the tenth plague was the death of the firstborn. And anybody could be saved from this, from this plague. You could be an Egyptian and you could be saved from this plague. You could be anybody and be saved from this plague. You could be a prisoner. You could be a king. You could be a pauper. You could be a prince. Made no difference if you were Pharaoh or if you were the garbage collector. You could be saved from this plague simply by faith. Believing in God's word. And here's what he asked them to do. Take a lamb into your house for seven days. A perfect and spotless lamb. And remove all of the leaven out of your house. Leaven, a picture in the Bible of sin. Remove all the leaven out of your life. Right? <clears throat> and bring this lamb into your house. Get to know it. Be a friend of it. It's going to be part of your family. And then at the, on seven days, I want you to lay your hands on the animal's head. Confess your sins on it. And I want you to sacrifice the animal. And that animal will die in your place. And take the blood of that animal, put it over the doorpost of your house, and the angel of death will have no power over you. You will be delivered from death. All of it a picture of who? Jesus on his crucifixion. And this is what we have in Jesus Christ. And anyone can be saved. All you have to do is believe him. And Jesus, knowing that tensions were mounting with Herod and that that day would come too soon, he's wise and he pulls back just a little bit to let the dust settle. Pulls back a little bit from uh, all the hype of the, of the, uh, the Jewish people and the, the tension in Rome. And thirdly, the, the tensions with the religious leaders who were getting pretty agitated at Jesus, every time they try to snare him, he speaks words so, so profound that they look foolish, and now they're ready to kill him. And so Jesus pulls back a little while to let the dust settle. settle. And originally he goes up to the Sea of Galilee uh, to kind of let the dust settle in Jerusalem a little bit, but so many people come up to the Sea of Galilee that now he goes up even further north up into Tyre and to Sidon to let things cool off, to let things settle down. And it's just good leadership. And here's some practical application for us. Uh, some of us are prone to push too hard, and it would be good to just lighten up at times. To not take things so seriously, and to just lighten up a little bit. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, certain personality types are like this. Maybe you're a perfectionist. Maybe you're a workaholic. Maybe you're an overachiever. Maybe you are a tiger mom. Maybe you are a bit of a control freak. And sometimes it's good just to push, just to say, hey, hey, lighten up a little bit. Lighten up a little bit and take a step back. And uh, that's what Jesus is doing here right now. Uh, by the way, those personality types, when we push that hard... Uh, we tend to stress about things and we overstress about things. And sometimes it's good just to pull back and say, Lord, I'm just going to relax. I know you're God. I know you're in control. And uh, just take a step back. I really believe that some of us would be far more successful if we lightened up a little bit. If we just lightened up a little bit. The second thing that Jesus is doing is uh, not only allowing time for the dust to settle, but secondly, he's taking a rest. He knows that he and the disciples need a little rest, and rest is good for the soul. 
And Jesus is just allowing a little time of rest, a little Sabbath, a little relax, uh, you know, R&R, rest and relaxation. And uh, uh, we know this for sure. You say, Dave, how do you get this, that this is what Jesus is doing? Well, Mark's gospel gives us a little insight on the same story with this woman that uh, Matthew doesn't give. Take a look at Mark chapter 7 on your screens. Let me hear you read this. One thundering voice, one church, church voice together. From there, he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. Yeah, Mark gives us a little extra insight, a little commentary into what's happening. He says, hey, when Jesus went here, it's because he wanted to be secluded. It's because he wanted some downtime. The problem was uh, he couldn't be hidden. That was the problem. The rest of the verse. Rest of the verse, please. Thank you. Uh, For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. And that's the story we're looking at here. But Jesus wanted some rest. He just wanted some downtime, not only just for him, but also for the disciples. They had been pushing pretty hard. And it's super important that we take some rest that we get away from things and just kind of recharge. Rest does not necessarily mean sleep. It means recharging the batteries. What recharges your batteries? For me, nothing recharges my, my batteries more than just some playtime with people I love. Whether that be some games or going and playing tennis or going and playing pickleball with my daughter or, or just, you know, uh, just some, some time to recharge the batteries. Maybe you like to surf. Maybe you like to... Uh, go for a walk. Oh, I love going on, on just prayer walks where you just go for a walk and you get away from everything just to, just to focus on the Lord. I like to go out in the garage and just go work in the garage. And, and I have some great talks with the Lord out in the garage. But it's so important that we get these times of rest. Uh, you know, here's another rest that I think it would be really good for us to pay attention to. Uh, to get away from screen time. TV, computer, phone, just constantly a blue screen mesmerizing us. Oh, what was that? I think I felt something. Oh, that's my phone. Oh, I don't have my phone. Oh, where's my phone? We, we feel our text even when we don't have it, right? It's like, dude, you might have a problem. Your leg's not vibrating. There's nothing in there. Pay attention to what Jesus teaches us here as he goes and he just takes some time away, right? Uh, It's interesting, the theology of play in God's kingdom is clearly evident. You look at God's kingdom and there is play everywhere. You look at animals and you look at dolphin and they play. You look at puppies and they play. You look at cats and they play. It doesn't matter, birds and they play. It just, it's awesome to watch. And God created you to enjoy life, right? Sometimes it's good to have some rest and take a step back, to not take things so seriously and just, uh, just enjoy. Uh, Proverbs 17 says, A cheerful heart is good medicine. And so Jesus takes the guys and they go up to Tyre and Sidon, right on the coast, right on the coast of the Mediterranean, to get away, to let the dust settle, to have some R&R, to take a Sabbath. And there he meets this woman with a problem, with a serious problem. And now we'll kind of get back into our talk about, well, when God doesn't answer. She's got this, da- this daughter who's in great danger. Her daughter's not going to make it unless God intervenes. And she goes to Jesus just begging, Jesus, please. And what's interesting is this woman is not a Jew. Mark's gospel tells us that she's a Greek. She's actually a, a Syrophoenician. Uh, she's, she's not related to the Jewish community at all. And yet something very interesting happens. She obviously knows something about the Messiah. She obviously knows some kind of Bible knowledge. And you say, well, how do we know? Well, here's how we know by the words that she utters. And she utters some words that are very specific. She says, have mercy on me, son of David. Son of David? 
Well, David has been dead for a thousand years. David lived at a thousand BC. It's now zero. It's now, you know, Jesus' life. That was a thousand years ago. What does she mean, son of David? Well, it reveals that she understands something about God's word. You see, God had foretold that the Messiah, Jesus, was going to come from the very beginning of time. Amazing. Jesus would say, in the volume of the book, in other words, every page, it's about me. And from the very beginning of time, God was telling the world, God was telling man, God was telling us, the Messiah is coming. He told Adam and Eve that a, that a, a, a deliverer was going to come. He told Enoch. Enoch was the seventh descendant from Adam. That's really early in history. The seventh descendant from Adam. Do you know what Enoch was? Well, the Bible tells us, the book of Jude, Enoch was a preacher. And do you know what his message was? Do you know what he preached? He preached about the second coming of the Messiah. Not the first coming of the Messiah, the second coming of the Messiah. The book of Jude teaches that. So from the beginning of time, God has been telling the Messiah is going to come. He would later come to Abraham and say, now Abraham, we're going to narrow it down even tighter. The Messiah is going to come through your lineage. The Messiah is going to be a Jew. He's going to come through your lineage. I'm making a covenant with you, Abraham, and I promise I'm going to bring the Messiah through you. I'm going to make you a great nation. That's Israel. And Abraham has Isaac and Jacob. Jacob's name is turned into Israel. Israel has 12 sons, and those are the 12 tribes of Israel. And later on, uh, God would say, Judah, one of the 12 tribes, it's going to come through you. And then later on after that, God would come along to the, tribe of, uh, to the lineage of David, and he would say, David, the Messiah is going to come through you. And he's going to have a kingdom that never ends. As a matter of fact, David, your life was just a picture of the messianic kingdom. And that's why the Jews were looking for a king to overthrow Rome. Because David was a ruler of the world. And so, uh, son of David, she understands this is not just an average guy. This is not just a rabbi. This is not a good teacher. This is not a good man. This is not just a nice person. This is the Messiah. And she comes to him, son of David, I know who you are. You are the promised Messiah. Have mercy on me. Not only does she know that he's the promised Messiah, but she knows the proper relationship that we have to him. We don't come to him by our performance. We don't come to him by our merit. We don't come to him by our good deeds. We don't come to him by finally arriving and being a good enough person that he says, now you can come in. No, no, no. We come to him in mercy and grace, all by his goodness, not by ours. All by his great love, not by ours. And so she understands, even though she's a Gentile, she understands a lot about him. Have mercy on me, O son of David. Very interesting to see. And what's fascinating is that Jesus answers her not a word. As a matter of fact, it appears as if he's ignoring her. And when God is silent... It can be extremely difficult to go through. Oh, you're going through a real trial? You so desperately need to hear from God? You need some kind of direction, some kind of intervention, some kind of movement of God to show you the right path? But the heavens are brass. God is silent. And you wonder and you cry out, God, where are you? Don't you hear my prayer? Can't you see how much trouble I'm in? Can't you see how badly I need you? God, why aren't you answering me? And our heart breaks. And we don't understand. You ever felt like that? Well, you're in good company if you have. For there are men in the Bible who are very, very godly men. Who experienced the same thing. Job for example. Job. The first book. Written in the Bible. 
That Job? Yeah, that Job. Job was a godly man. He had a really close relationship with God. He was faithful. And one day in heaven, Satan comes to Jesus. Satan, by the way, has to check in with Jesus on a regular basis. Uh, God does not give Satan any more leash than God allows him to have. And God is sovereign over all things. And Satan has to report to Jesus. And God asks Satan a question. He says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him in all the earth. A righteous man who loves me, who fears me, who walks in my ways. And you know what Satan's answer was? You bet I've considered him. Of course I've considered him. But here's the problem. I can't get to him because you put a hedge of protection around his life. Isn't it great to know, by the way, that if you are a believer, if you are walking with Jesus, there's a hedge of protection around your life? That nothing that can, nothing can come to your, to your path, into your life, into your family that hasn't first gone through a father filter that says, yes, that's okay, I'll allow this. And even the hardships he'll allow and use for, for his glory. I'm so thankful for that hedge in my life. And as I've been a Christian now for 32 years, uh, I've seen that hedge of protection. I marvel at it. Satan responds to God and said, well, yeah, but if you pull down that hedge, the only reason he worships you, the only reason he blesses you, that he, he loves you is because you bless him so abundantly. God had made Job a millionaire. Job had a huge business. He had a U-Haul truck business. Uh, they were camels. <laughs> he had the biggest camel uh, rentals in, in the land. And people, when they were moving, they would go to the Job's U-Haul store and they'd get a camel and they'd pull their stuff in it. And, and Job had a very successful business. And Satan says... Yes, uh, he, he, he worships you, but only because you've blessed him abundantly. And he says these words, skin for skin, all that a man has will he exchange for his own flesh. You take away that hedge of protection, you let me bring harm to him, and he will curse you to your face, he tells God. And God says, fair enough. I'll remove the hedge of protection only do not touch his life. Don't take his life. And in one day, Job loses his entire company. Millions of dollars gone one day. In one day, Job loses his house and all his land and all his possessions and he becomes homeless. In one day, Job loses his children and his family. Job still doesn't curse God. Satan comes back, asks God for more position, more, uh, more favor, and says, hey, let me, let me get his flesh. Let me get his flesh. And he says, okay, but just don't kill him. And now Job's flesh breaks out in these blistering boils from head to toe, every inch of his body. So bad were they that they were just pussing and oozing. He could only lay down on ash for comfort, using ash as a therapeutic to try to help this ailment that he has. If that was not bad enough, Job then has some friends that come along to make things even better. And these friends come along, and for seven days, they say absolutely nothing. They just sit by his side. And that was when they were at their best. Sometimes the best thing we can do is just come along someone and go, oh man, my heart breaks for you. I really care. And just zip it. But after seven days, their self-righteousness kicks in. And you know what they tell Job? Well, Job, the real problem is you're a sinner. You're not as righteous as me. I don't have this problem. You clearly have God against you. And so they start hassling Job, telling him this is because of sin. 
If you read it, it sounds a lot like the counseling you would get today if you were talking to somebody. Well, you repent of your sin. You got some hidden sin in your life. And the irony of all of this is these years go by tremendous anguish and God has the audacity to not say one single word to Job. How nice it would have been if God would have just said, hey, Job, hang in there. You don't know what I'm doing, but what I'm doing is I'm writing the very first book of the Bible. Bible, what's that? Yeah, I'm going to have a book. It's about me. (laughs) And you're going to be the first story. And your life is going to minister to millions and millions, perhaps billions and billions of people through the ages. Job, I know you don't understand what I'm doing, But trust me, there's going to be great reward for you, Job. Throughout all of eternity, I'm going to reward you because your life is going to touch countless lives in ways that you can't even begin to understand. As the heavens are higher than the earth, Job, so are my ways higher than yours. Wouldn't it be nice if God explained a little of that? But God says nothing. Nothing. And he's not the only one. There's King David who had a young boy as a teenager is anointed by God to be the next king of Israel. And what should have been a great celebration in his life turned out to be a plague because this king, who was king, King Saul, was so insecure, was so jealous that for the next 22 years, King Saul would try to kill David hunting him like an animal and David would have to leave his home and live homeless living like a vagabond living in the wilderness traveling from place to place as Saul was hunting him like a wild animal God where are you what's going on where are your promises when will they be fulfilled and it is so hard when God is silent Frankly, I'm amazed about how often God does speak to us and God does guide us. Uh, He just leads, guides, and directs. As a pastor, I get to see it corporately in all of your lives. I get to see it corporately as a church, how he provides, how he's so faithful, how he always leads, how he always gives a message, how he always puts on my my heart the word that is what you... He's so faithful. But there are times when he remains silent. And I've experienced those times in my life when God is silent. And when it hurts so bad. Times when you're hurting so bad, you actually wonder, am I even going to make it through this? God, where are you? I'm a father of four. And raising four children, uh, I'm so proud of them. I have amazing kids. But there was times when, well, one of them in particular went very sideways. The other three, I was blessed. I got pretty straight arrows. But I had one that was just about 90 degree crooked, right? I mean, just, you'd shoot it this way and it'd go that way. And there was a time in my life when I was like, God, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if he's going to make it. God, where are you? And it was a long period of time. Where are you? There was another time in my life, early in my days in ministry, where I had left everything. I'd sold my business. I'd left it. I really felt God's calling on my life. But it wasn't coming into fruition. It wasn't happening. It wasn't, it wasn't tangible yet. And even though I was ministering and there was good things happening, uh, I really felt like God was calling me to be a pastor. And that door just never opened. And I remember being, you know, just despairing and being to the point of... of Wanting to give up and even depressed and even discouraged and even crying out, God, where are you? And God was silent. Not a word. Oh, I've been doing this long enough now. I look back and I totally see why God did that in me. It developed some character. I would have never made it as a pastor had he didn't build that in me. But I didn't understand it at the time. And those times are so difficult. It is so hard when God is silent. And we struggle when we're facing those kind of things. Furthermore, there are a lot of Job's counselors in our day today. It's modern Christianity. It often portrays 
Christianity with a thin veneer of hyper-spirituality that just is not real. Some Christians act as if they don't have to live by faith at all. It seems they have a direct line directly to God. They can just pick up the phone and hear the voice of God. Well, I prayed this morning and God told me, really? Because I live by faith. I don't know about you. I live by faith. Oh, no, no. God told me. You know what? I've been single for a long time and I'm tired of being single. And I woke up today and I said, God, I need a spouse and I'm not going to wait anymore. And God said, you, you got it. You name it and claim it. He told me to put on gold pants, black shoes, and a blue shirt. And today I'm going to claim my wife. Really? Can I tell you something? That is a very thin veneer of hyper-spirituality that is not real. It is fake. And can I say this? It is fake at best. It is diabolical at core. It's not real. God has called us to do something very difficult. He's called us to live by faith in a God that we cannot see, and yet we see his attributes everywhere. That's not easy to do. He's called us to allow his word to speak truth into our life, to lead, guide, and direct us, and he's given us his Holy Spirit to guide us on that journey, but it will always point us to the Jesus of the Bible and to the word of the Bible. That's what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do. Oh, how wish, how I wish I just get that, that booming voice. We'd all like that. And yet, that's not the way it works. And rarely do we talk about God being silent in our lives, about God not answering our prayers in a way that we would understand at the moment, of Him leaving us seemingly alone with no direction. But I tell you, it happens. It's part of a genuine walk with God. And it's happened to every godly man and woman in the Scripture. Uh, Don't believe me? Flip over to Psalm chapter 13. Psalm chapter 13. Flip fast, and when you get there, hold your Bible up so I can know you're there. Psalm chapter 13. Ooh, there's a fast page turner. Look at you guys. Psalm chapter 13. This is a psalm of David. A psalm, yes. Words that he put to music, a song. Of David, yes. David, when he was wandering through the wilderness, wandering why, wondering why God would not answer him. So, um, psalm chapter 13, here we go. Verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Forever? Ever feel that way? How long, O Lord? You might want to note, by the way, four times David says, how long? How much longer? How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Forever? Where are you? I'm suffering, Lord. Where are you? How long will you hide your face from me? There's the second how long. How long will you hide your face from me? I cry out, but you don't answer me. I search for your guidance, but I don't get it. I'm looking for your comfort, but I can't find it. You're silent. How long will you hide your face from me, God? The third how long, verse 2. How long shall I take counsel in my soul? Take counsel in my soul? What's that? Looking for direction and guidance from God, but instead just wrestling with your own thoughts over and over and over. Just wrestling with my own thoughts, not hearing from God. How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? Oh, Lord, I'm just grieving deeply. I just, Lord, I'm hurting. How long will my enemy be exalted over me? My enemy? Well, the enemy of sorrow. The enemy of depression. The enemy of loneliness. The enemy of doubt. Lord, what are you doing are you in my life? Are you even moving in my life? The enemy of failure. The enemy of emptiness. Oh, there's a million enemies. The enemy of unmet expectations. 
How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Verse 3. Consider and hear me, O Lord, my God. Lord, please, please hear me. I'm dying here. And look at this. Enlighten my eyes. That is a great prayer. I want you to know something. I often pray that prayer. I have a relationship. It's not quite right. There's something not right in it. And I'm like, Lord, more light, please. I need wisdom to know how to proceed properly in this. More light. I'm studying my Bible. I'm not fully understanding. God, why did you do that? What was this? What does that verse mean? Lord, more light, please. More light. And I meditate on the passage, waiting for his light to come. And here he says, enlighten my eyes. Show me your way, Lord. Show me what you want me to do. Let me hear your, your direction, your guidance. Let me experience your presence. Enlighten me, Lord. Lest I sleep the sleep of death. What's he talking about there? Lest I drive it off a road. Lest I throw in the towel. Lest I just give up. You ever been despairing life? Verse 4, lest my enemy say, I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. Here is David's honest cry to God, and he's really crying this, God, why won't you answer me? And here we see something in verse 5, we see how to wait when God is silent. And I want, you, I want to give you this. This is an important truth. You might even want to, to write it down. When God is silent, we find strength by focusing on God's good character. Look what he does here. But I have trusted in your mercy. What's he saying? Lord, I'm just trusting in your amazing love, in your amazing grace. I'm not trying to earn my way. I know this isn't happening because I'm not good enough. That's what the enemy would like to lie to you. Oh, God doesn't love you. You stink. You've blown it. You've done it too many times. He's not going to forgive you. No, no, no. David doesn't hold on to any of that. He says, no, no, Lord. Look what, he, look what he says. He says, I have trusted in your what? Say it with me. In your mercy. I haven't trusted in my greatness. Lord, I've trusted in your greatness. Right? My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. David understood that salvation was by grace, not by merit. He's saying, I'm going to trust in your deliverance, in your righteousness, in your grace. And I will sing because God has dealt bountifully to me. Hey, when God is silent, we find strength by focusing on God's character. That's exactly what David is doing here. One more psalm real quick. Flip over to Psalm 77. Just a few chapters to the right. Psalm 77. <clears throat> this is a song of Asaph. Asaph was the worship leader for Israel. So for us, it would be kind of like, this is the Psalm of Kyle. Uh, and uh, here's, here's Kyle's psalm. Look at verse 7. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favorable no more? Lord, are you done with me? Lord, am I just, am I ever going to hear from you again? And look what he does. He takes all of his attention, all of his focus, and brings it back on God's good character. And he asks some rhetorical questions. Look at these. Has his mercy ceased forever? And the obvious rhetorical answer is no. Has his promise failed forevermore? And the answer? No. No, God's promises cannot be broken. God cannot lie. He is not a man. What God promises he will bring into fruition. And he's reminding himself of God's good nature. Uh, uh, his promises will not fail. Has, verse 9, has God forgotten to be gracious? No, God is not sometimes gracious and sometimes just. He's always gracious, right? 
Uh, Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? And the answer is no. And then he writes the word selah, which means stop now and meditate on those things. Before you go any further, just stop and meditate on those attributes of God. And look what verse 10, look what happens. And I said, this is my anguish. It, it feels like God has forgotten these things, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. What's that? Uh, right hand, uh, idiomatic term, it means like, oh, he's my right hand guy. It means that it's a position of favor. And he says, I'm going to remember when I was at the right hand of God, when all the blessings of God were just pouring into my life. I'm going to remember all the good times of old that God has done. Uh, I'm going to remember how God delivered uh, Israel and all the things. And and that's what he starts getting into. Verse 11. Uh, Verse 10, he says, I will remember the years of the right hand. Verse 11, I will remember. There's remember again. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember. There it is again. Your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your work, and I will talk on all your deeds. This is why fellowship is so important, that we would come together as one body and remember all of God's good things when we're going through a dry season, that our faith would be encouraged by our gathering together. And that's why Hebrew says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some, and all the more as you see the Lord's return approaching. We look at society today, and here's what I know. The Lord's return is at hand. It's even at the doors. And so important that we're remembering and we're focusing on God's good character and we're spending time in fellowship and we're not allowing uh, these things to, to uh, the, the hardships uh, to take us away. Uh, look what he says, verse 13. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. You have with your arm redeemed your people the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Uh, Jacob's name was changed into Israel. The sons of Israel, uh, he's just remembering about all the good things God has done. And he goes out and he talks, if we went on, he was going to talk about the Exodus and how God delivered them with a mighty hand and how he brought them back from captivity and all the good things that God has done. Uh, Just amazing. So important that when God is silent, we find our strength by focusing on God's good character and we wait for the Lord to reveal and to work. Let's come back to our story in Matthew 15 and let's look at what God, Jesus does in this. This woman, she's waiting. God's not answering. She's crying out. He's not, he's not responding. This woman has a broken heart. Her daughter is in a serious, serious trouble. If Jesus doesn't intervene, she, her daughter is going to die And yet her faith is strong because she's focused on God's good character, even among the setbacks that she has. And she has three significant setbacks. Let's take a look at them. Number one, we already looked at Jesus apparently seems to be ignoring her. What a huge setback that is. And how hard it is when God seems silent. Secondly, not only is Jesus ignoring her, but secondly, look at verse 23. Look what the disciples say. Send her away, for she cries out after us. After us? Hey guys, you're not that important. And she ain't coming to you. And this isn't about you. But nonetheless, the disciples discourage her. They show her no compassion. As a matter of fact, they have disdain for her. I want you to know something. Immature, hyper-spiritual Christians often distance themselves from hurting people and gravitate to the stars and the movers and the shakers and the attractive people. It's just a common thing that that, uh, immature Christians do. And they act as if they live closer to God than you do. Well, hey, we have Jesus. Jesus, send her away. We're the holy huddle here. We're the amazing ones. She's just the scum of the earth. Send her away, right? And the disciples, here's what we learned. The disciples are still selfish. 
And we see how, how hard it is for us to actually grow and actually change. The disciples are still selfish. And I want you to know this. Selfishness causes us to miss out on the good work that Jesus wants to do in our life. Some of us aren't experiencing Jesus' good work in our life because we're so caught up in our own selfishness. Our little world, our little house, our little mansion, our nice car, our new thing, whatever we want to buy, the new, the new this that came out, it's just always about our little world. That's where the disciples are. They're like, uh, hey, send her away. Uh, she's bugging us. By the way, in chapter 14 we read, they had the same answer to the 5,000 Send them away. Do you remember that? Send them away. We've been preaching all day. We've been, not we, Jesus, but they take credit. Send them away. Send them away. We're tired. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You give them something to eat. Say, I don't have anything. I got these five little loaves, these two little fish. What is that? Some bung, so many. Bring those things to me. Bring the little that you have to me, and I will use it to, to bless others. This is God's way. And they did. And instead of sending them away, Jesus used them in powerful ways to do an incredible work of God. How glad do you think they were that they didn't send them away that day? How glad do you think the disciples were that they didn't send the people away? What do you think Peter said when he went home to his wife that night? Baby, it was amazing. You're not going to believe this. I fed 2,000 people myself. Yeah, Jesus gave me this basket. I just kept handing it out. It never ended. When we were done, we had 12 basketfuls. It was incredible. And he got to experience the work that Jesus wanted to do in and through his life. But he's forgotten the lesson, and now he says, send her away. And he almost missed out on what Jesus wants to do again. Selfishness will do that to us. It'll cause us to miss out on the good works that Jesus wants to do in our life. And here we see from the disciples, selfishness dies a slow death. Jesus knows what he's going to do in this woman's life. He knows he's going to answer her prayer, and he knows he's going to heal her daughter. But amazingly, Jesus throws up a third obstacle. The first obstacle, he's not listening to her. The second obstacle, disciples are harassing her. The third obstacle, look what Jesus says. I wasn't sent to the Gentiles. I was sent to the Jews. Ouch. Ouch. How painful that must have been for her. And look what she responds with, though. I'm amazed at her faith. Jesus says, I wasn't sent, verse 24, except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, I didn't come for you, a Gentile. And she said, she came and worshipped him. Worshipped him? What is that? She said, Lord, I know your nature. You're amazing. I know your love. You're incredibly gracious. I know you are the Messiah. And I know there is no one else I can come to who can help me. I know you alone have the words of eternal life. And she worshipped him. Amazing. No doubt that faith tremendously blessed and touched Jesus' hearts. Jesus' heart. She, she knows that Jesus is the Messiah. She knows that Jesus is good. And that's what she's holding on to. And in spite of all the obstacles that are thrown in her way, she's holding on to the goodness of Jesus' character. And look how great her reward. Look at this. Uh, verse 24. Uh, sorry, verse 27. Excuse me, verse 26. Uh, Jesus answered her and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the little dogs. Another setback. Little dogs? That phrase, by the way, is uh, the only time that word is used in the New Testament is for this story. It's not a dog like a wolf or a, you know, a wild animal. It's a, like the, our, our English word would be a little puppy. 
The word little dog in the Greek is just one word, and the equivalent would be a little puppy. Jesus says it's not good to take the disciples' bread and to throw it to the little puppies. And she says, yes, Lord, but even the little puppies eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. And Jesus says, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be done as you wish. Oh, amazing. And her daughter was healed that very hour. Oh, how great the reward for those who keep their eyes fixed and focused on the goodness of Jesus Christ. Imagine what is going on in her life now. Now the Lord answers and her heart is filled with joy. Her daughter is healed and moreover, she is fully aware that Jesus is delighting in her. Oh, daughter, he says. Look at this. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. There are only two people in Scripture where Jesus ever came and said, Oh, great is your faith. Only two people. Interestingly, Jesus never said that to the disciples. <laughs> As a matter of fact, to the disciples, he always said, O ye of little faith. There are only two people in the Bible that Jesus said that to, one of them this woman, the other, a Roman centurion. Both of them, interestingly enough, Gentiles. The Roman centurion, oh, he comes to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, will you heal my servant's son? And Jesus looks at this man. He knows he's in a position of power and affluence. And he says, interesting. You're coming not for your son. You're coming not for your servant. You're coming for your servant's son. And it touched Jesus' heart. And Jesus said, I'll come. I'll heal him. And the guy says, no, 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 no. You don't need to, for I understand your authority. Just speak the word, and he'll be healed. Because I am a man of authority, and I'm a man under authority. I have generals over me. They tell me where to go, and I go. I have men under me, and I tell them where to go, and they go. Lord, I know who you are. Just speak the word, and it will be done. You don't need to come to my house. And Jesus looks at that man, and it says, he marveled at his faith. The only other person. And he says, I have not seen this kind of faith. No, not in all of Israel. And this woman, Jesus looks at her and he says, Oh, woman. I was able to use you and, and, and to illustrate some truth to my disciples that I didn't come from the lost sheep of Israel, that I was the fulfillment of all the promises, that my plan hasn't changed, and I knew you would hang in there and stay to the end, and I was able to use you to teach my disciples, O oh woman, great is your faith. And she felt her worth like never before. How amazing. And I want you to know something. Great faith is available to all people. Because great faith does not depend on our greatness, but in understanding the greatness of God's love for us. Let me say that again. Great faith does not come from our greatness, but simply understanding the greatness of God's love for us. And this woman understood that, and because of that, she had great faith, and her life was forever transformed. Jesus heals those who come to him by faith. I'm going to ask Kyle and the team to come up. Let's look at these last three verses very quickly, and let's look at what happens. Jesus departed from there, and he skirted the Sea of Galilee. He goes back on that, that journey back down to the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on a mountain, and he sat down there. Uh, a mountain is really just a hill on the side of the, on the, the Sea of Galilee. And he taught him there for three days. Three days, just teaches. Verse 30, then great multitudes came to him, having with them uh, 
I'd like you to do this. Get a pen out, if you will, and I'd like you to circle these words with me. Will you do this with me? Uh, Literally humor me. Circle these words. Uh, Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, the blind, the mute, the maimed, and many others. And they laid laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. I wrote a little note in my Bible. This is us. The lame, what are the lame? Oh, the lame are those who are born with some kind of birth defect, some kind of problem, some kind of, and they can't walk. They can't move. They're lame. The blind, oh, those are those who don't see things properly. Their vision is greatly hindered. The mute, oh, those are those who can't speak. And the reason they can't speak is because they can't hear. In order to speak properly, you have to first hear properly. And there, my friends, is a very spiritual lesson. He brings, they bring the mute, those who can't speak properly. He brings the maimed. The maimed? What are the maimed? The maimed are those who have been wounded severely by life. They lost a limb. They lost a leg. Their heart was scarred. Their soul was crushed. They've been maimed. And many others. Many others who fell into their various addictions, their various vices, their various ways of coping and trying to deal that is so dysfunctional and so messed up that it's perverse. This is us. This is us. And they brought him to Jesus. And they lay him at his feet. And he heals them. And I love watching him do it. And I never tire of seeing his good hand on his people. This is us. And this is him. This is what he does. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speak properly. And they marveled when the maimed were able to walk again and be made whole. And they marveled when the lame were actually able to walk and to leap and to be filled with joy. And the blind could see. And they glorified the God of Israel. Jesus heals all those who come to him in faith. And if he is silent, do not lose heart, but press in. He's working. His ways are just higher than yours. And hold fast to his good character, for he loves you. And he created you for his purpose, that you might know him and experience his amazing love for you. And that your heart would be filled to overflowing as a result. And you would live your life healed and well to the praise and glory of his name so that all who saw would marvel. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visis our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.